Well, hello and welcome back, fellow riders, to this edition of Bus Talk. I have a fascinating episode for you. If you recall, the last episode was about the job of your resume from a recruiter's point of view. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the hiring manager's point of view. What happens to your resume when it gets shortlisted by the recruiter and it lands upon the desk or the desktop of the hiring manager? What are the expectations, the first perceptions, basis which, what are the two or three things you could do differently so that your resume stands a better chance to get hired. I'll also touch upon the people aspect of it, the processes aspect of it, and technology aspect of it. All of this gets impacted while your resume is traveling the journey from your outbox to the hiring manager's inbox. Well, hello and welcome back, fellow riders, on Bus Talk, a podcast about work-life issues which crowd our minds each day. Myth-busting into reality, we share some tips and tricks to better your work-life balance, or the lack thereof. Simply put, it's a straight talk to help you cope well with various situations without having to reinvent the wheel. And yes, there is a lot of traffic, so it does take time. We go slow, steady, and at our own pace. If this is what piques your interest, you're on the right bus. So sit back, turn up the volume, and enjoy the ride. I'm your host, GB, and you're listening to Bus Talk. Great. Now, before the resume lands on the desk of the hiring manager, let me take you back a few months where the story of hiring actually begins. So what triggers that requisition, that requirement to hire somebody? Most likely, if it is a replacement headcount, then the story begins at least two to three months before a formal headcount request is raised. Let me take you inside the mindset of a typical hiring manager. Imagine they are running about a seven or eight member team and say, take January to December. Now, when a particular person decides to look for opportunities for whatever reasons, and we won't get into the reasons whether right or wrong, good or bad or ugly, but the person has decided to move on and look for another role. This, whether you like it or not, has a direct impact on the productivity, consistency, output, of this particular person. This fluctuation is immediately picked up by a hiring manager. So for example, and I'm just again giving a sales example, if you've been operating at about a, say a three deals per week kind of a run rate, suddenly you miss a week or maybe drop down to one lead, or one deal a week or something for maybe two, three weeks consecutively, that's when the hiring manager's alert levels go up or should go up. If they don't, I don't know, but it generally does. If a manager is paying attention to the consistency of performance, then if even if there is a slightest dip, they should be able to tell. They should know why the dip has happened, the reason behind it in during the team meetings, because the hiring manager's manager or their senior management often will ask the question well your business in this particular region 
did not perform as well? Why do you think this is happening? What can we do about it? So the question really starts from there or that should really trigger a question. Why is it happening? And when you drill down, it usually boils down to two or three reasons. Either the person is looking out and is disinterested in the current scheme of things or there is some problem with the business which is within the scope of fixing it and can be fixed. But in the latter case, when the person is switched off, the often rebuttal is, yeah, boss, I had a bad week. Uh, I'll make it up for it. And then suddenly you see a spike. But that spike is short-lived. And then again, the following weeks, you notice a change in this particular person who starts to distance himself or herself from the regular proceedings. You will notice them in meetings usually being switched off, not really paying attention, and you often catch them off guard and so on and so forth. So when these kind of activities happen, and there are many more symptoms, I'm just giving you some which come to the top of my mind. These are the times when the hiring manager starts to you know, understand or get that there is something cooking. More often than not, it turns out to be true that the person is looking out. So if the person starts to display such activities, say by first week of January, I'm just giving a random timeline just to give you a picture. So by March, this person or April, this person will most likely tender their resignation. So that's the general three months. T minus three is when these activities come to light. So the first hint is T minus three. Then by T minus two, it becomes that much more evident and T minus one in the immediate days is the time when the team member is about to get an offer from another company or there is a financial negotiation going on, so on and so forth. And so those times, these people find it very difficult to concentrate and rightly so, right? There's just too many things going on in the mind. And those who manage to keep a straight face despite that, hats off. It's it's actually a very difficult thing to do. And so smart managers read through the poker face. Really, trust me, they, they can see no matter how, how much one camouflages, they see through that. That's when they have the first conversation with their management when they do a people review, usually at the beginning of the quarter or end of the quarter as per the business, and say, here are the green candidates which look like continuing through the course of the fiscal the orange ones are likely to continue but they're not great performers so we may you know move them out of the system the red ones are those who will most certainly most likely move then the assessment is made how much of it is voluntary which is like good riddance to bad rubbish vis-a-vis oh my god if this person leaves then what happens so that assessment is a very crucial assessment. So if you are in that in a category where you are good riddance to bad rubbish, and I'm just being blunt here, so somebody's chicken is someone's burger. So, <laughs> But the point is, you will get slotted at either end. If you're in the red bracket, identified as a potential attrition, is that person might as well leave? And so is it? it doesn't matter. That could be uh, one conversation, in which case the hiring manager also is present with the recruiting head or the HR people in the room. The immediate next steps are to decide how to ease this person off and therefore initiate a fresh requisition. You have to ask for headcount. And in many organizations, the headcount approval comes from 
HQ or from senior management or from another region, country or stakeholder. Oftentimes, if the position is very critical, then that headcount is borrowed from another cost center, as it were. So those decisions are made. This is we are still in the T minus one time frame. And once it is established that where the headcount is going to come from, which cost center is going to bear, a formal request is set into the CRM into the system and a headcount approval process is initiated. While the recruitment team knows that this is in process, they will wait till the headcount is approved. Oftentimes, people have learned it the hard way that they've gone ahead and spoken to a few candidates and then the headcount has not come through and they had to stall the candidates. That's why many of you must have been very surprised as a job seeker that you've crossed four rounds and they have not heard back from the company or just as the pre-offer stage, you've not heard back anything from them and you must be thinking, what the hell is going on here? And so these are the logistical challenges that happen because company situations change quarter on quarter, right? Last quarter, the company did very well. This quarter, things turned bad. So they need to hold on the headcount. These are global decisions that happen or at a high level, which impact the whole company. So therefore, until the the headcount approval request is in the inbox of the recruitment team. They usually don't initiate a search activity. That said, people work together for many, many years and they trust each other's judgment and standing within the organization. And, you know, the hiring managers tend to request and say, come on, can we just at least talk to a few people, you know, keep the candidates warm and ready so that we can close them out quickly. It's in the recruiter's interest to close a rec quickly, rec as in requisition quickly, because their incentives often depend on that. So it works both ways, but they have to be very careful that that headcount shouldn't get jeopardized or halted or frozen, which is also a very common occurrence. And so that part of, if you are in that part of the red where you have any people are happy to let you go, then these background activities happen. And as and when you tender your resignation, not anybody's surprised, they wish you well and say thank you for your services and life goes on. If you're on the other side of the red, which is the company wants to retain you and you want to leave, that's a tough conversation internally with the management. So people know that either you're going to ask for a promotion or you've not been given a promotion or you've not been given a raise or you've asked for something which is not been given to you over a period of time. So you have reached a level of dissat, dissatisfaction that is, which is generally a trigger point. Now, like I said, this is, again, I'm generalizing, but seven on 10 cases are on similar lines. And so therefore have the discussion, is this the right time to give them the promotion? Is this the right time to give them the raise? Now, how we have, we have had debates about this since eternity, since Adam and Eve, that why wait till the end point, till the last point when the employee is completely frustrated and then give them the promotion or the or the raise, the counter fear for the hiring manager is, now I've fought with 300 people in the management and the recruitment and the ops and what have you. There is no guarantee that the moment I give this person the promotion, that they will stick for on the two years. What if they leave in one month's time, you know, they, and renegotiate an even higher offer? 
that is always a risk. And so therefore, there is always this debate in the management circles that what is the right time to promote somebody? Is it on past performance, future potential? Give it when you can. And what happens if the person leaves? And is it worth the risk? So those conversations are very tough conversations. So if you are in the T minus one phase and you're in that part of the red category where you have been a great performer, they don't want to let you go, but they know that getting you a promotion or raise is not going to happen. That's a call that the hiring manager takes that go ahead and hire a replacement. Typically as step one, they'll try and explore what is available nearby which is fair and logical. You know, somebody from another team who wants to move, who's been a generally a good performer. Though I must add, most often, if you've been doing well in a particular team, generally people don't move. They only move when the existing team or, or the current team doesn't really want them and something or the other is not working out. So therefore, they apply to other departments or other places. Very rarely I have seen like a top performer in one department move into another department. Now, it could happen that the top performer here has no further growth, no further roadmap, and so they move, and that's fair. But if there is a roadmap, then why would they move at all? So more, more often than not, we see average to bottom performers generally try to be around the system as it were. That's the general trend. Again, I'm simplifying. It's not the case with everybody, but you often come across across such cases. It's, it's fair to say, right? If you have not been good at one role, does not mean you won't be good at anywhere else. Simply because you also went through 10 rounds of interview or five rounds of interview with six different people and checks and balances have been done to induct you into the organization. So you must have been better than the preceding 300 people who had also been who had also applied. So you cannot be a bad employee by design. And that's a conversation for some other time. But just to give you a sense that these, these are the times when the hiring manager gets to really think hard about his headcount planning. The first question that comes to the head hiring manager's mind is how am I going to sustain the performance for the year when this person has decided to move? Let me explain. So January, this person's performance starts to dip, puts in his papers 1st of April, and then 1st of May, this person exits the organization. By the time you get the headcount approval for this replacement headcount, it's somewhere around middle of April or late April. It usually takes about 45 to 60 days to hire somebody. So you're talking about your May gone, some part of June also gone. And to be safe, say the, the earliest somebody can join is 1st of July. And then from 1st of July, you add about a four month period when the new employee, no matter how good that person is, will take that time to feel the system, understand the ecosystem within the company. You know, no matter how much you want them to plug and play and run and whatever, they will take about four to six months time to ramp up. There are claims that we can, people can shorten the ramp up and so on and so forth, but the cultural complexities of a new organization are huge. So safe to say it's about a four month journey. So now when you add the math, you're looking at four months, 
then about two months of interim of hiring and the two months of less productivity. So you say four plus two, six plus two, eight. So almost seven, eight months of work inconsistency is something that bothers the hiring manager way too much than you can imagine. Why? Because who else will take the load? For example, if that's a sales team, then the work productivity for seven to eight months has to be distributed to the existing set of guys. Now the existing set of guys will say, boss, I'm already overloaded. How can I take an extra load? And for what? Because there is a cap at incentives. Once you cross 120% or 140% or what have you, there is a cap. And even if there is no cap, you still have nine hours a day. And so how will you suddenly double the work when it is already very, very tough? Remember, these are not walk in the park kind of jobs. These are typically each jobs are designed in a way which are almost taking the load of one and a half to two resources. So therefore, you know, one analogy is that if two resources cost, say, $200, I'd rather pay $110 to one resource where the market rate is say 60 or 70, they will pay say $110, which is way above the expectation, but it will also entail that that resource does almost one and a half to two resources job, quota or quanta, if you will. And that's how the ecosystem kind of balances itself, high paid jobs, but then you don't get time to breathe. And so when the hiring manager faces such a dilemma that how do I distribute the workload, that's when the panic button sets in. Like how quickly can I hire? The pressure to hire is very intense. They might not show it in the interviews, but believe you me, no matter how big the organization, the meter is down the moment the person resigns. As simple as that. And so they know that they have to hire the right guys and have to get them on board as quickly as possible. Most hiring managers spend a lot of time with the recruiters before they set out to interview. Now they have done, these are usually in those cases which, which are repetitive in nature where frequent hiring is, happen, is happening. They might not do that as much. But for those places where these are new requisitions, the hiring manager spends a copious amount of time in explaining this is what I want and they specify keywords and at least this much and at least that much. This has a counter effect on the recruiter. Why? Because now they are constrained by a very tight specific requirement. So there could be a great guy who doesn't have all these keywords, but if they present a very non-standard resume to the hiring manager, to what he or she is expecting, most likely he or she is going to reject the resume saying that recruitment is giving me a poor quality resume. This also in turn reflects poorly on the recruitment department. Like, hey, you gave us 300 resumes. Do we have the bandwidth to interview 300 people? And you know, that's not, you give me like three resumes and I should be able to hire two of them. These are often unrealistic business asks but I just gave you the back backstory to it, why they are under pressure, right? So the, the role of the recruiter therefore becomes very redundant, right? They become this collection agent for lack of a better expression. They are not like a business partner where they consult the, the sales leader or the hiring manager that, you know, this is how I understand your business and you, this profile has these three strengths 
which will solve this particular problem for you. There very seldom or very rarely do we get to hear such conversations. Most likely is here is my requirement. Give this to me. That's it. And let's move on. And so by the time the resume lands on the desk of the hiring manager, they want this to be like Superman. And that's where my Superman theory that they're expecting this person to be Superman material. Well, like I've shared before, turns out there is only one Superman and he may not need a job. And when I say Superman, I also mean Wonder Woman. Um, turns out there is only one and she might not need a job. And that's the classical dilemma that most businesses face. Add to this, if there is a, in this melee of pressure and expectations and everything, if there is a slightly off-color resume, when I say off-color means there's a typo, there's a gram grammatical error, or there is like a four-page resume or something like that, this is very off-putting to the manager. They are like, why am I even seeing so much of stuff? Where is the relevancy to the job description? Can I not get a single resume which speaks to the role that needs to be done? And so if you heard my previous episode, and so what helps to differentiate your resume at this point in time is a short cover note. I cannot stress you enough the importance of a personalized specific cover note for the hiring manager saying, you know, I gave you the example of what to write there. Not a very long three-pager, just a 336 liner. That's it. As to why you could be a best fit for the role. It helps. And so A plus B, a decent one-pager resume, a short, crisp, relevant, not a generic which you send all kind of, kind of a cover note, increases. Does it guarantee your job? No, but it increases the probability that they will spend a little more time with the resume. Rest, your interaction with the recruiter will also play a role because they will champion your cause internally. So you've got to make sure that you ask the relevant questions to the recruiter. What constitutes a good job? What is the ideal profile? What was the previous expectations? What has changed now? These questions will help you shape the content of your conversation. Resume you've already sent, but the conversation follows. So first hurdle is to break into the attention span of the recruiter. Once done, then make the recruiter become the internal champion for you by asking relevant questions. And third, when your case is presented to the potential hiring manager, then they immediately see a relevance to the role at hand. So what are they expecting then at that point? This is all already remember, we did T minus three, two, one, and this is T plus one already and guy is still not on board. So what the hiring manager now is looking to think is, well, I have a resume in front of me. How close is this resume to the person on the floor? Do, will I need to spend too much time or too little time? Or will this take a lot of bandwidth? Is it a risky hire? Does the Has the person changed like five jobs in seven years? Or is this a more stable person who's done like two jobs in 10 years? I'd rather hire somebody like that rather than someone who has jun jumped ship multiple times. You know, these are the thoughts that are going in their mind right now. So these are the few things I thought I'll share with you. There are many more points, friends. I just gave you a whole 360 degree view of what goes on from the time 
t minus 3 to t plus 4 and the interim period of two months in, in between that a potential hiring manager goes through in his mind uh, while hiring somebody. These are very, very difficult decisions and that's why oftentimes you have seen that one or two people leave together and then if you have a 10-member team and three people decide to scoot, then you are in deep shit as a hiring manager and therefore your hiring preferences change accordingly. And therefore the bar goes higher or lower basis these situations. This is almost, I can say, independent of the organization. Oftentimes people think that, well, if it is a tier one kind of an organization, then the hiring standards are going to be very high, which is the case in when all things run constant or equal. But when the proverbial shit hits the fan, then the desperation is at either end. And yes, one they, they won't hire you blindly or they won't hire mediocrity blindly. But then you have to make yourself eligible at least when they go low, if you can go high, above average skill sets, conversation, presentation and everything. The probability of you getting a job with on your terms and conditions becomes that much more realistic. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And if you had any questions, you know what to do. And if you have not yet already, then look up Hiring the Dragon Warrior. That's Bus Talk 28. Look up Layoff Tiger. That's Bus Talk 38. And then of course, the previous episode, Bus Talk 40, the job of your resume to get a full 360 degree picture. Well, that's all for now. I hope you had a good time listening as much as I had sharing these thoughts. And if you did, do tune in to the other episodes of Bus Talk. Yes, you could share them on Facebook or Twitter and with especially those who might appreciate similar content. And if you need to talk to me or reach out to me, you can use the Twitter handle hashtag Gyanban, spelled as G-Y-A-N-B-A-N, one word, or email me on gyanban at gmail.com, again spelled as G-Y-A-N-B-A-N-N. Be sure to tune in next week. There is a fascinating episode coming up for you. Till we meet again, stay safe, be well, and bring your A-game to work. Ciao.